1 Corinthians 5, we have been plowing through here. Paul is talking about ministry, life in ministry, what it means to be a minister of the gospel. And he's been particularly talking about our context of earthly bodies and the corruption that we find there and how the Lord meets us in that and gives us strength and shows his excellency and strength through our even human weakness up to the point where we're raised up with the Lord Jesus and showing that our light affliction here works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So when Paul says for in verse one, it's still in context of all those things. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, where it has the idea of being thrown down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So uh, commentators here take a few different views of what is happening. Uh, this is not purgatory. Paul's not talking about soul sleep here. This is not an intermediate body for an intermediate state. Paul is talking about the removal of one thing, this tent or habitation, and then taking on something that's eternal. Uh, and the, the two kind of views, the main views that people have is either Paul's talking about heaven as the building, heaven itself, the place we go, or our resurrected bodies. And most would agree he's speaking about our resurrected bodies. That has been the context from chapter 4, verse 7, all the way down here. It's really the thing that makes the most sense. And particularly with the Corinthian church, we know from 1 Corinthians into 2 Corinthians, the resurrection was one of the things that they struggled the most on doctrinally. There was unsound doctrine concerning the resurrection. There were people even saying there was no resurrection. This was something Paul had to make clear with them, and he did work to make that clear. So the context, what he's talking about here is our earthly house, just like he talked about earthen vessels, the body that we've been given made out of the dirt, literally humanity, a body formed out of the dirt, that's where we're housed, our soul, our spirit there. This tent, he says, tent gives the idea of the thing that we don't live in forever. It's something that is temporary. Our earthly house, this tent is destroyed. Then we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul wants them to know, to be assured about something, because they're all going to pass through it. Their house, their tent is going to be destroyed. But God isn't going to leave us in that condition. We're looking for a new building from God, not another tent, not something that's temporary, something that is settled that's heavenly and that's eternal. Death, again, when we speak about it, when the Bible speaks about it, is ultimately the separation of a man's spirit from his body. God's purpose and end for man is not to leave humanity in that broken condition. Death is an abnormal state for a human being. God created us body, mind, and soul, all those things together. And he has a perfect end where we can love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength freely and in harmony. We are not at that end yet, and we pass through death in this life. Uh, 
My next bodily condition, though, a resurrected body that's going to be like Jesus's body, will be my unchanging and eternal state. Paul says that's a house, a building, again, in contrast to a tent, not made with hands eternal in the heavens. It means it's not man-made. This is God-made. And it's going to be eternal and heavenly, situated for the state that it's in. Now, Paul's going to expand on that. He says, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Here, Paul admits there's a dissatisfaction. He says, in this we groan, verse 2, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. There's a dissatisfaction, a groaning that leads us to earnestly desire this next heavenly existence. Groaning happens in a lot of ways. I think the certainly the physical aspect of it is here. Um, it's Groaning becomes a more common habit the older we get. Uh, most children do not groan when they jump out of bed unless we're waking them up too early or just standing up or something like that where we might have to remind ourselves, oh, don't groan when you stand up. It sounds really old, you know. So that tends to come more into our life. But Paul makes it clear the groaning is not just a desire to put off the body as the body is corrupted. That's not the end goal. He says, not that we should be naked. We don't want to be just a soulless existence. That's not what the Christian existence is. Again, there's other ideas of the afterlife, and many of them are ghostly and ethereal and something along those lines. But we know, Paul says, our body is fashioned like unto his glorious body, that there's an embodied existence, even though it's better. And that's what we're looking for. And our ultimate desire from God, he says, is to be further clothed. It's not that we shall be found naked. We who are in this tent groan, being burdened not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. No, I'm, I'm looking for the next thing. I've begun to experience something in this life here that is good. Pieces of it the beginning of it. But then what happens is this life is still affected by sin. My body is corrupting. Still my emotions, my mind, they're not what they're supposed to be. So what happens is there's some godly groans for Christians. And there should be something in our spirit that begins to sigh and say, okay, Lord, this is my home. I am looking forward to something more. If we're a little too at home here, then there's a problem. Alan Redpath, in his book, Blessings Out of Buffeting, said, If a man is content with life as it is, content with his earthly surroundings as with temporal things, what evidence is there in such a life that there is the Spirit of God? The Spirit of God is not totally at home in this life. He's working something toward us. Now, again, as I said, some of that comes naturally. 
There are certain things to look forward to in life, and those things are wonderful. But there's a reality where death and corruption begin to touch every life on some level. And when that comes in, even Jesus, the Bible says, groaned in his spirit. Death was even troubling for him. The Bible tells us Jesus wept Lazarus' tomb. There's something that comes to us that's symptomatic of a problem. Sin in this world. Corruption. The breaking down of this tent. Again, we physically put a lot of emphasis on our tents, but that's what they are. They're tents. They're just passing. We can look around and compare our tent to other people's tents and wander around the campsite and critique other people's stakes, how they put them in the ground and whatnot. But the reality is all these things are going to be thrown down. Fortunately, the final Christian experience is not death and groans. The final experience for Christians is, Paul says at the end of four, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. What a wonderful phrase. Wonderful picture here. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, Paul would say, When this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Normally we talk about death swallowing up things, or people, or life. But the Christian's hope, when he puts off his tent, is that our mortality is swallowed up by life, not death. What comes upon us is a greater place of life, and all the places that we once felt earthly weakness, the perishing of the outward man, the corruption of sin in our nature, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, where we groan for something more, In all those places, we are going to know power, immortality, and heavenly life. We get tastes of these things here. It's not that this whole world is a groan. It's actually because we begin to taste wonderful things like life, like energy, like purpose, like love, like friendship. Things that we're going to find in heaven and find in their purest and most wonderful form. The world's a wonderful place in many ways, but the problem is there's always then sin that taints it. Sin comes in and somewhere friendship breaks down, somewhere physical life breaks down, somewhere energy breaks down, somewhere society breaks down, somewhere all those things that are wonderful, they begin to break down. Corruption comes in. And ultimately, the greatest picture of that is death. But what Paul says is, our final experience is not death, it's life. There's wonderful life in a little child. You look at them and they can just like shake their body because they have too much energy, you know. Just run around in circles, sweating, and you're, you're sweating just watching them, you know. They throw them in the air. What do they say? Again, throw them in the air again. They will just do that endlessly. Just life. There's a wonderful emotion 
to youth in a wonderful way. When you're younger, you can throw away friends in one form of life for another. Yeah, as we get older, we step into maturity. In our middle age, we're in a place where we're both mentally, physically, and spiritually, we're in our most competent state. Then as we get older, our personalities, our wisdom in a lot of ways can grow, but we begin to lose some of that strength, certainly physically, the wonder of things, become more careful, we're not quite as ready to change as we were when we were young. And there's always some form of the life that gets affected. But God's not like that. He's not like that. And he doesn't just have life. He is life. He is a life-giving spirit. He's like a fountain that just keeps pouring it out. There's a guy named G.K. Chesterton who famously said, For we have sinned and grown old, but our Father is younger than we. His point was, God hasn't grown old. He hasn't lost his wonder. He hasn't lost his life. He hasn't lost his energy or his activity. And what he promises is, your mortality, the corruption that's in us isn't in him, is going to be swallowed up by life. That's what we're going to find. Like a kid running out into the sunshine on the last day of school, free in the summer. Living life, right? Your first step into the fresh day of immortality. You're going to experience life like you never experienced life. All your mortality swallowed up with life. Jesus said, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life, and that more abundantly. Paul says, don't get it wrong here. Yeah, we groan. This tent, I know. It's going to be put away, but I have in heaven an eternal home waiting for me. And I'm not looking for a naked existence. I'm looking to put that on and have this mortality swallowed up with life. So he says in five, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the spirit as a guarantee. He says this is God's plan for humanity. Now, certainly he knows that. In Jesus Christ, God has set this up. He knew from the beginning this is what he was aiming for. A humanity, incorruptible, undefiled, that's not fading, with him forever, full of life. It's the exact opposite of what Satan always wants to tell us, that to follow God, you lose your life. To follow God, you have a lame life. To follow God, you miss out on life. What the Bible actually says is, there is no life outside of him. All you have is corruption. To find life, your mortality will be swallowed up by it in Christ Jesus. This is what God's plan is for humanity, to know life, to truly live. And Jesus died physically, 
and then rose, was the first to rise from the dead, never to return, a resurrected body. Life in a new way. His life is our example, is our hope. He says not only that, but he's given us his spirit as a guarantee, a down payment, something that is the beginning of the rest of what he wants to do in us. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 say, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. He's begun this work of life in you, in you first, not on the outward, on the inward. He's given us new life. He's caused us to be born again. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you don't have this life. You might walk into a church. You might have a Christian background. But if you don't have life, you don't have what Paul's talking about here. Spiritual life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The type of life that you can say, the only reason I can say this is in my life is because Christ is in me. The only reason I have these desires, the only reason I have changed, the only reason that I'm doing any of the things I'm doing is because Jesus Christ changed me. Because I'm a new creation in him. Because I have the Holy Spirit until the redemption of the purchased possession. Until it's all obvious. One day... And the Bible teaches Jesus will make manifest his sons and daughters. It will be obvious to any creature in heaven or hell that I'm his son. Because I will reflect his glory. Because I will be filled with life more than anything in the world other than God himself. But now I have the down payment. God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are going to finish what they started. They don't get that work going and then allow it to just peter out. That life is going to find its fulfillment. Now, again, in the scriptures, there is an indeterminate amount of time between our death and our resurrection in the scriptures, between the redemption of that purchased possession the resurrection we see happen with the church age, age saints in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, with the Old Testament saints in Daniel 12, 1 through 3, and the tribulation martyrs in Revelation 20, 4 through 6. Whatever is going on there, theologians use the term intermediate state. The point is the intermediate state is not the hope of the believer. It's a transitional period. That's why it's called the intermediate state. And we don't have a lot of details because that's not what our hope is. (laughs) Our hope is resurrected with Jesus Christ in a new heavens and new earth for all eternity. And he says, the one who put his spirit in you and started that work is going to finish it. He's going to make sure it happens. He is our example, our forerunner, our first fruits. Jesus Christ shows what we're going to be what his preparation is for us. We're prepared for this very thing by God. The life of heaven is your more natural environment than sin. Doesn't seem like that in the world, but sin is the alien element that came in. 
You were created in God's own image and likeness to know this life, to walk in this life. And this is what Paul says we don't have to be worried about. We know that these things are true. God has prepared us for this very thing. And even in the middle of all his difficulty and the physical hardships, he says, verse 6, so we are always confident. Again, look at the, the confident language. We are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, we miss something a little bit here in the English translation. The word for absent in the Greek, and I don't know how to pronounce this exactly, is ekdemio. That word for at home in verse 6 or present there in verse 8 is the same Greek word and it's endemio. So the idea is, therefore, or excuse me, we are always confident that knowing that while we are endemio, we are ekdemio, and if we are then ekdemio, we are endemio, right? So in the Greek, there's a little word play. You wouldn't notice it here in the English. But for verses 6 and 8 to, as Paul is saying, be at home is the same word as being present with the Lord. So the main point is this. Anyone who dies now is at home with the Lord. That's the idea, the translation. If, if I am present in the body, if I am at home in the body right now, I am absent from the Lord directly. Therefore, we walk by faith, not by sight. I don't see all that my hope is and what my original is, Jesus, the first fruits. I can't see that with my physical eye. I can't physically touch it. So I have to walk by faith in relation to those things. But if I then become absent from the body, I become, again, the same word, at home with the Lord. And what a wonderful phrase for the Holy Spirit to inspire Paul to write. At home has the idea of just being present with your people. I love the Old Testament phrase that if Moses or Abraham, they died, they were gathered to their people. Not to a lonely, alien existence. Not to a place that's foreign. Not to a place where you don't know anybody. Gathered to their people was the idea. Now we all know what it is to feel at home. You feel at home, you're comfortable. We also know what it is to be away from home and wish you were home. You're stuck somewhere, trapped in an airport, in difficult situations. Wish that you were just at home. The safety, the comfort, the company, the idea of home, the whole home system is all something designed by God. Again, it's heaven for rookies. We begin to learn about it here so that when we experience a better version of it that there's no corruption in and no sin in, it's not alien to us. It's, in fact, more home than we've ever known. 
and what Paul wants these believers to know and to think about is we can be confident. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We know that. We know that's what's happening here. We don't have to be tricked. We can all have doubts at times. We can wonder, man, what am I doing here? Is this all real? When I come to die, is it going to be real? Right? That's why Paul says he admits, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't get to live our day-to-day life in the visible presence of the substance of our faith. That's what he's saying. I don't, I don't get to, again, walk around and see Jesus or resurrected people. And human death looks so final on our end. The things that are in front of us that we see seem like they're the most real things. The seen world makes us forget about the unseen world and the unseen Christ who lives at God's right hand in a resurrected heavenly body. And that place that we're headed toward in that unseen world. But it's not just some separate place. The Bible says it's all around us. That he could just peel back the veil here if he wanted to. And we could see right into it. It's not some faraway existence. It's an inch away. And it's an inch away for any of us. And faith acknowledges that. And he says, we're, we're absent from the Lord while we're at home in the body. I'm connected to this existence right now. So I have to walk by faith, not by sight. And faith just trusts the things that God says and his character. And sometimes it's a weak faith or a shaking faith, but it can still be faith. And he wants us to grow in those things, but we have to live like that. D.L. Moody famously said, Some morning you will read in the papers, D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I was born of the flesh in 1837, and I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit shall live forever. That's a nice suitable expression of someone living by faith, not by sight. Not going to allow all the things that are just right in front of me or that I can understand with my own intellect to determine how I live. I'll live by faith in God, in his word. So what can we be confident about? I think this is important. With our loved ones who have passed into the unseen, what will happen when we lay aside this tent, Paul wants us to know. Verse 8, you can be confident about this. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present or at home with the Lord. Absent from the body, at home with the Lord. Paul says this is what you can be confident about. This is what you can know. Paul would say in Philippians 1, 21 and 23, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So we don't know all the details. 
If we die today, we, here's what we know. I go to the place where Jesus is and I'm at home there. And Jesus is, the, is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And it's a place where there's a throne room and there's a temple, and there's an altar, and there's a sea of glass, and there's angels and saints and the spirits of just men made perfect. And I become gathered to my people. And I don't know all the details of it, but I know that it's gain. And I know that it's far better than the existence I have right now. And I know I'm not dead or soul sleeping or out of existence or something. I'm not in purgatory. Jesus is not in purgatory. Purgatory is not in the Bible anywhere. It's not a biblical doctrine. I'm absent from the body and I'm at home with the Lord. That's where I am. Again, maybe we wish we had more details about these things. Maybe we wish we had a little bit more to know of. Jesus talking about heaven when he spoke to his disciples in John 14 again said, if it were not so, I would have told you. Essentially saying no news is good news. If you were going to step out of this life to go to the other side and there was something you need to be warned about, there's something you need to be afraid of. If there was something on the way you had to be careful of. If there was a trap right at the end that was going to grab you that would change the whole thing, I would have told you. If it, if it weren't like I'm saying to you, I would have told you. Paul says we can be confident of these things. We can be well pleased in it. The moment of death for the Christian is different than the moment of death for the unsaved. If I don't have hope in Jesus Christ, death becomes the ultimate terror. It is the ultimate problem in life, and everybody has to have an answer for it. If you're like, I don't like this Bible answer or Jesus' answer, that's cool. you got to find a better one. There is no better one because there's only one empty tomb, and Jesus is the only one who died and rose again and is never going to die again. So you want to bet on him. But for the rest of us, my death becomes the laying aside of all that hinders my communion with Jesus Christ. I go from all that being unseen to being seen. I step toward life. My home with Jesus, its gain is far better. That's what his word tells me. I'm trading my tent for a home. And nobody would be depressed for somebody who trades in a tent for a home. If your friend lived on the corner in a tent and then told you I bought a house, you wouldn't be like, oh, bummer, man. You're going to miss out so many things now that you're not living that tent life anymore. It's not going to be as fun when it rains or when it's cold. right? You, no, the house is better. That's the whole point here. Willing to lay aside that tent to head toward the house, the home. Now, are these comforting thoughts? Most certainly. But for Paul, they were also exhortive truths. He knew there was somewhere to go with this. So he says in verse 9, Therefore, because of all that I've been saying, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Paul doesn't say, this is just a comforting thing. He says, okay, if I know I'm going to depart and be with Jesus... 
then I should make it my aim, I should labor, I should focus on being pleasing to him now. Because what I do in my body now matters then. I make it my aim. The idea there in the language is loving honor or being ambitious. Really, this is the one pure ambition in the world. There's one pure ambition in the world, which means you can never have too much of it. And that's pleasing God. You can never desire or be ambitious for pleasing God too much. We, unfortunately, are very focused on pleasing ourselves and pleasing other people. What happens with that, though, is it's not bad to make, to be kind or to make some nice gesture towards somebody or even to please people on some level. But the reality is, ultimately, Pleasing other people, when it comes into conflict with pleasing God, who wins? Or when we all know pleasing ourselves comes into conflict with pleasing God, who wins? And that ends up being a constant battle for us. But is my aim in life to please him? Jesus would look at the Pharisees and say, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Don't you want honor that comes from God? He says, he that honors me, I will honor. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and they were very much about pleasing their own little crowd. He said, one of your problems is you don't seek the honor that comes from God only. You seek the honor of other men we're happy when other people see us, but is God pleased in these things? The very purpose of our lives has been flipped upside down when we make it our aim to please ourselves or to please other people. And again, there's a very subtle distinction where we can, in a Christian manner then, say, okay, I know the whole goal of my life is not to do that, but like God's not upset if I do something nice for myself. God wants me to do nice things for myself. I, I understand what you're saying to a point. But I can't just live my life pleasing myself without trying to displease God. Because who's first? Still me. I can't live myself with me first. As long as I just make myself happy without doing something real sinful, then it's okay with God. No, it's not if my life is still all about me. I can live a totally selfish, shallow life that is self-focused and not do a whole bunch of societally negative sins. I can just live my life in a whole bunch of sins in good standing, still look better than a lot of people, and essentially just live a self-focused life. Paul says we make it our aim to please him. That's the purpose of our life. When Adam and Eve were created, they were created for God's pleasure. When the world was created, it was created for God's pleasure. Revelation 4, that's the song that they sing at the end. All things are created for his pleasure. That's why you and I were made. And it is an incredible privilege that human beings can be 
the greatest instrument in pleasing God. C.S. Lewis would say this in his book, The Way to Glory. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination and shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Paul said, if this is all true, if to be absent from this body means to be present with the Lord, then we should make it our aim our ambition, our life focus, whether we're present or absent, whether I'm here or there, to be well-pleasing to him. Again, this was the testimony that Jesus Christ had from his father and from his own lips. When he was baptized, Matthew tells us, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. Jesus would say in John 8, 29, He who sent me is with me. The Father has not let me alone, because I do always those things that please him. That was Jesus' testimony of himself and his life. I do always those things that please him. You can never want to please God too much. That is the example that Christ left us. That is what Paul says. We're going to him. And when you show up and you're there with him, that's going to be what really mattered. How will we come to know this? What is it going to look like? How can I be sure that I've pleased God? Well, here's what Paul says. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul said, we're all going to come to know at the judgment seat of Christ how we've pleased him. Judgment seat, again, is the Bema seat. Paul had talked about that in 1 Corinthians. If you look up the word, it's constantly used of government officials in the Bible um, Pilate was on his bema seat judging Jesus Christ. Paul constantly was drugged before kings and rulers at their bema seats. It's where uh, often in the Olympic Games the rewards would be handed out, but biblically it's more used in terms of judgments, those making judgments on another's life. And here the picture is, verse 10, for we, this is believers, all believers are going to come before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Not for your salvation, but for your works. To 
see if you have been pleasing to him. Only sons and daughters will show up at the Bema seat. Those who reject Christ will be at the white throne judgment in Revelation 20. There are no believers at the white throne judgment. There are only unbelievers. There are no unbelievers at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat of Christ. There are only believers. And what is judged in this moment is whether we were pleasing to him or not. That's what's judged. Now, this doctrine is difficult for some people. It's important to recognize that it has its proper place in the Bible. Unfortunately, we get into trouble when we allow one truth to displace another truth. All biblical truth is held in balance. Everything the Bible teaches is true. It's already reconciled because it's in the Bible. And sometimes we think we have to reconcile the things that the Bible teaches. No, if God revealed them, they're already reconciled. They all work together. And the only reason that they don't work together is because we try to force a piece in the puzzle in a place it doesn't go. So this is something that gets left out very often because it's not exactly a popular doctrine. It should be a very important doctrine, but, you know, it's not the happiest thing in the world to go say to somebody, you're going to be accountable to Jesus Christ for your life. We'd rather not hear that message in America. <laughs> Even as believers, the legalist wants his good works counted towards salvation, which we know is false. Outside of Christ, the Bible says we only have dead works that are to be repented of. Then after we get saved, the lawless person, they want all their lack of works to be ignored for eternity. That my faithlessness didn't really matter because I'm saved. It's one and done. I got saved and now nothing really matters until I get into heaven. Also unbiblical. What the Bible teaches is the son or daughter of God cares about their life because they want to please their father. That's what the Bible teaches. And their father who is pleased will reward them for their faithfulness because he's good and because he's loving. Jesus says in Revelation 22, 12 and 16, and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. Not according to my work, according to his work. This is Jesus speaking. One of the last things he says to the churches is, hey, get ready, I'm coming quickly to give a reward. To everyone according to their work. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. So what Paul says is, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We are going to make an appearing, a showing, a revealing. It's not just that we have an appointment. We have an appointment and we will be revealed in that appointment. It will be shown who we truly are, body, mind, and soul. Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. He knows everything about us. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Jesus would often talk to the Pharisees and say, Why do you say in your heart or why are you thinking in your thoughts? 
the things that we don't say out loud, Christ knows them. He knows them. Matthew 12, 36, you say, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Every idle word. Every idle word. Now, I shouldn't be afraid or embarrassed for my motives to be seen by men and not Jesus. It's his view that matters. Even sinful men, our esteem of sinful men totally changes when God's view of them changes. Right? Moses was a murderer. Most of us are not murderers. David was a murderer and adulterer. Peter made some pretty horrible mistakes. But we think of them as godly individuals because of what God says about them. Because his view of a life is the view that matters. And none of their contemporaries' view would matter when God's view is something else. Somebody said, reputation is what people think you are. Character is what God knows you are. Our character will come out when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I think it's important for everyone to recognize that we have an appointment. I'm not just going to go to heaven. I'm going to stand before Jesus. And I'm going to give an account of my life. We must all appear there. And then he's going to say, each one. We're not going to give an account as a group, as individuals. I'm not going to be able to blame everyone else. I'm going to be held accountable to the Lord personally. And that moment becomes the true measure of a life. All our reputations will disappear. What everyone on this, this earth thought about us won't matter. And only our true character will be seen and known and revealed in the eyes of God. George Whitfield said famously, what type of man is George Whitfield? That great day will declare it. He said, you want to know who I am? We'll all see when we stand before God one day. That's what our life is. I also think that it's encouraging to realize at least our successes, what is pleasing to Jesus, isn't going to be measured by family, friends, churches, denominations, or popes. And I actually have a pretty strong inkling that the things that please Jesus, that the successes that he enjoys, are going to be very different than the ones that happen to please people here and now. You know, John the Baptist, in his worst moment, where he questions whether Jesus is even the Messiah, Jesus sends back a pretty tough reply to John. But then when those messengers leave, how he talks to John was very direct. How he talks about John is glowing. He talks about him as a shining light that people rejoice to be around. He talks about him as the greatest prophet ever born. He talks about him in a remarkable way. John at that moment was in the least godly moment of his life, probably. And Jesus is talking about all the things John did that pleased him. And other people probably would have looked at John there and thought very differently about it. We know the story of the woman with the two mites 
who comes and throws them in the coffers and sneaks away. Jesus is watching, says she gave more than they all. None of her contemporaries thought that in that moment, but that's what was true. That's what was true. Jesus is actually very easy to please. He's actually very easy to please. When Mary came and broke her alabaster box, the disciples jumped in with Judas saying, why this waste? Jesus said, you better leave her alone. She's done what she could. And wherever this gospel is told, what she has done is going to be said as a memorial for her. It pleased him. The little things in our lives that we might think aren't very important, I think are going to look very different at the judgment seat. And I think if we thought about that now, we would do a whole lot more if we knew quite how much it pleased him. Of the simplest things. But Paul wants us to know we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done. Receive has the idea of receive back, a payment back in kind. Uh, the Bible's very clear there's going to be gain and loss at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. We talked about that in 1 Corinthians. If you want to study on that, you can jump back to that study. But Colossians 3, Paul say this, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. God doesn't play favorites. We're judged as a whether we're faithful sons and daughters. Christ was judged for our salvation. Our faithfulness is judged for our rewards. Eternity was won through Christ's work, but eternal reward is won through our works of faithfulness to him. That's what the Bible teaches. Does it seem strange? Again, I admit it. It does seem strange because it's not spoken enough, even by a lot of faithful Bible teachers. But Paul obviously doesn't think this is strange, and he doesn't even feel the need to explain it very much. You notice that? He just states it as if they all get this, and they should understand. We're all going to be here before the judgment seat of Christ, and we're all going to receive for the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That same body, the body that did the good things or the bad things, is going to receive. And it shouldn't be surprising to us, even if it does seem strange. Certainly, our eternal happiness, literally our eternity, is decided in this life. So why should not our rewards and the quality be decided in this life? We decide whether we get to heaven or hell at all in this life, let alone whether we're rewarded there. Sometimes we act like that's a surprising thing. It's more surprising that we get to go there at all. That the rest would be decided here is also not in conflict at all. Some people will say, and I think this is important, that we should live for God's glory and not eternal rewards. And that does sound very spiritual. But... There's not a single Bible verse that says anything like that anywhere in the scripture. 
And it's never a biblical motivating exhortation because it's not actually theologically correct. Because the pure desire for God's glory and eternal rewards aren't conflicting. That's why. There's no conflict there. There's only human conflict there. There's no divine conflict there. Because the desire for a reward is the desire to please Jesus. And that should be the aim of our life. That's the whole point here. There's a lot of reasons why we're going to be rewarded at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. God's glory will be reflected in the testimony of every reward. If I see you with a crown in heaven, I'll be like, why do you have that? And you're going to tell me what amazing thing Jesus Christ did in your life that you have that crown. It's not going to be your glory. It's going to be his. Well, if Moses has a crown for part in the Red Sea, he's not going to be strutting around like he did it. He knows he didn't do it. Every reward in heaven is a testimony of God's glory. The fact that the names of the tribes of Israel are written over the gates, they don't have any pride in that. That's God's glory. All those rewards are going to be a testimony of his glory. And it's God's goodness in his character as the great giver. We're going to look around and be like, God, you are so good that you poured out your riches in the way that you did. You only give good gifts, as you say in your word. Not only that, it's necessity for faithful stewardship of this life as strangers and pilgrims. If we don't live for eternal things, what do we have left? Worldly things. That's it. There's only two choices. But if I'm living for eternity, then I am using this world in a faithful manner and in right stewardship. So I have to live with an eye to those things, which is why the Bible puts it forward. And God's intent, again, to make manifest his sons and daughters to show what we are as his sons and daughters in glory is part of his intent. And eternal reward is part of the way he will do that. And all those things are true reasons why we should live with this motivation. But the, the last one and the one emphasized here, and it's the number one reason why we don't have to worry about being too motivated by an eternal reward is because the desire for an eternal reward is the desire to know that we are a son or daughter in whom God is well pleased. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. It's not greediness for riches. Eternal riches are literal, physical, incorruptible mementos of God's favor. That's what they are. They're the signets of his pleasure. They're the currency of heaven that God is pleased. To receive an eternal reward is to know the very reason why we were created. To receive an eternal reward is to know the pleasure of God. That what, that's what makes an eternal crown worth my life or death. That's why God can promise a crown to those who are faithful unto death. Not because the crown is so valuable. Because what it represents in the pleasure of God is valuable. And because that's what our aim is. And there's so many verses I could bring out. I'll just say one. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You notice that? There's an eternal promise. 
if I endure temptation and don't give in, God promises me the crown of life and eternal reward. But it's promised to people who love him. The sign of approval is an approval of my act of love in endurance to the Lord. And the crown is just representative of a transaction that's already taken place. The transaction of love from one heart to the heart of God. That's, that's why we care about these things. It's the pleasure of God and not the reward itself that purifies eternal rewards as a motive for good works and gives them the high value the scripture clearly places on them and proclaims over and over again. That's why Paul can say, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Not just glorifying, well-pleasing to him. So, he says, we're all going to have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one will receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's the day where you get to know whether you've pleased Jesus. That's the day where you come to realize the true value of your life. And one minute here that is redeemed for the pleasure of God in that moment is worth it. If I suffered my entire life and spent my last minute faithfully pleasing him, it would be worth all eternity. That's why Paul can say our light affliction here is nothing compared to the exceeding eternal weight of glory that he has for us. And why can say, I make it my aim to please him. So, verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, the terror of the Lord, that Greek there is translated only terror three times, 41 times in the New Testament is translated fear. The idea is knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust well known in your consciences. Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the, the fear of the Lord is the supernatural reality that the finite creature feels when it knows it's in the presence of the infinite creator. That, that's what the fear of the Lord is. It's not something that I can get into people by threatening them about hell. It's when I live in recognition that God is with me. So what Paul is saying is, the ultimate fear of the Lord is the day that I stand before him one day, whether saved or unsaved. And I'm seeking to persuade men to recognize this moment because this is where your life comes down to it. All the suffering becomes worth it. All the moments that we have, we become accountable for. And this sets the stage for the rest of our eternity. I should live within the fear of the Lord, recognizing that I'm going to stand before him that way, that day. No self-deception is going to be left at the Bema seat. I'm not going to be self-justified and not going to be self-deceived. My eyes will be open to see my own life clearly in God's view. And I want to live in the fear of the Lord now, so when I stand before him then, I don't have to be afraid. And Paul wasn't. Paul said he was ready to depart and to be with Christ 
and he knew that there was a crown waiting him, and also for anyone else who loved his appearing. Because he could say, we're well known to God, and I trust well known in your consciences as well. The idea is, he had a clean conscience before God and men. He said in Acts 24, 16, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And he said, we're well known to God. He knows who we are. I have a clean conscience before God. And I think you guys know us as well, that we have a clean conscience in how we've acted toward you. And it's quite a gift to live that way now. So if the Lord is ministering to you, and you feel like if you died tonight and stepped into his presence, absent from the body and present with the Lord, and stood before him to give an account of your life, that there's a lot of stuff you would need to catch up on, my encouragement to you is do it now. Repent. Go to whoever you need to apologize to and apologize to them. Get your conscience clean before God and man right now. So that the day you stand before him, you don't have to worry. Live in the fear of the Lord now. Know that you're pleasing to him. And I think we're going to be shocked at just how easy it actually was to please him one day when we stand before him. And you'll be so happy you did. Let's stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these things. Certainly, Lord, you didn't have to tell us. Could have just discovered as we went along. But you knew, Lord, what we would struggle with here. You knew our fear of death. You knew the effects of corruption. You knew we would be concerned about being absent from this body. And we thank you for the things that you've given us that we can be confident about in you. And I do pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us ears to hear your word, that we're going to appear before you one day. And that we could be there, Lord, with a clean conscience before you to receive the crown of life that you promised to those who love you. So work that love in our hearts let us walk in that cleansing fear of the Lord. We know that that has to be the work of your spirit, and we believe, Lord, that you're good and that you want to do those things. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.